I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, it's James, and I am back with Austin and Jake to discuss ICE's Alternatives to Detention program today. If you didn't listen to yesterday's episode on CBP-1 and a little bit of ATD, then I'd suggest starting there because there's a lot of context that you might be missing in today's episode. Let's talk about alternatives to detention a bit. Let's say... This is a this is a once inside the US system, right? So it, it's a little different. It's people who've managed to get through the significant hurdles posed by CBP-1. What happens to them then? Yeah, so, um, you know, ICE has the option of detaining people um, mm-hmm. at immigrant detention facilities. Um, this includes people who are facing deportation, most people who are facing deportation. Yeah. Can you explain that, the Title Eight thing? Because people might not be familiar. I've tried to explain that before, but I'd love you to explain that again, just so people are clear. Regarding detention? Well, regarding like filing a defensive asylum application and why people might be doing that, like uh, it post like the post Title Forty Two sort of paradigm for for processing asylum. Yeah, sure. Okay, so Title Forty Two, which we talked about earlier, has gone away. Um, which mean now Title Eight is not like Title Forty Two. It's the part of the U.S. law which is about immigration. Title Eight never went away. Um, but it is now the dominant, you know, uh, uh, section of code that's, that, that is shaping border enforcement and immigration processing. When someone comes through CBP-1 and they, they get an appointment, yeah. they go to their interview at the port of entry, then they come into the United States, they have not made an asylum application yet. So they still have to do that. And the U.S., the United States has two options at this point. There's two agencies that can make decisions, can receive asylum applications and make decisions. USCIS, which Mm -hmm. is historically the primary one, U.S. Mm -hmm. Citizenship and Immigration Services, they have what are called asylum officers whose job it is 
to adjudicate asylum applications, interview people, and so forth. Or people, uh, the United States can uh, file removal proceedings, deportation cases effectively against these individuals, and put them into immigration court where an immigration judge can accept an asylum application and adjudicate the asylum application. The major difference here is that in the courtroom, uh, in, in the immigration court system, that individual is going in front of a judge and has an ICE officer, an enforcement you know, related uh, kind of attorney, uh, effectively arguing against them in court. Technically, they're not supposed to be arguing against them per se. They're supposed to be finding the right outcome, but effectively they're arguing against them, right. almost like they're you know trying to apply for asylum in immigration court or in like a criminal court setting, almost, not really, but almost. Yeah. Um, right. So here's the two main differences. When those individuals, you know, historically, when people have been put into the immigration court system, ICE does have the option of detaining them or at least detaining them for an early part of that process um, until they meet some certain folds. The Biden administration has decided largely at this point not to go that route. Um, that has not been true in the past. The Trump administration's detention numbers were up well over 60,000 people detained a day at one point. Right now, it's about half that. It's up from the beginning of the year, but it's about almost 30,000 people are in detention now. And people seem to be moving through, even when they are detained, relatively quickly. This is where alternatives to detention come in. Um, I, we should not think of alternatives to detention as alternatives to detention. In fact, ICE itself has said on their website and in testimony before Congress, Alternatives to detention is not an alternative to detention. It is an alternative to unsupervised release. Right. So it's what it really is, is an electronic monitoring program that allows the agency to effectively keep track of everyone that they want to keep track of. Now, the number of people in this alternatives to detention program is an extremely small fraction of the number of asylum systems in court. It is nowhere near you know, saturating the to total number of people that they could be. Uh, one wonders whether they consider 5% monitoring some kind of massive success uh, when, you know, when most people are actually not monitored. But one major change has happened, which is in addition to the smartphone app that migrants use to even try to seek asylum, now migrants also have to download an app called SmartLink. Yeah, uh, that is now this one's not built in house. This is contracted out uh, from an organization called BI that effectively mostly contracts with the criminal justice system, uh, but they also contract with ICE. So they have to download a, a, an app on their phone and they have to check in regularly using a, a similar but different kind of facial technology. Um, they can communicate with deportation officers. They can get alerts about their immigration court here, all this stuff. Um, but but the crucial part of that is under threat of detention or redetention, redetaining, uh, migrants have to check in on their smartphone. So it means that that same phone that one you know struggled with on the periphery of Reynosa, trying to just even get into the United States to pursue what is their legal right to pursue asylum, now they're glued to their smartphone, worried that if they don't respond to you know a text message or an alert or a ping on their phone. They could be redetained and you know potentially deported in some way. Um, so that that's currently how this is. So it's not for everyone. It's not as if everyone follows this exact same path. But it is true, and I think this is the big takeaway. It is true 
that asylum seekers today will start interacting with the U.S. government, may start interacting with the U.S. government on their smartphone as far south as Mexico City, mm -hmm. and then continue to have their primary contact and, and, and interaction with the U.S. government on their smartphone all the way through the border and to Columbus, Ohio, New York City, Seattle, Washington. So the smartphone has become effectively this kind of what I am, am trying to think of and conceptualize as a kind of mobile border they never where migrants never really arrive and they never really leave. Yeah, which is kind of not to uh, get too sort of, I guess, not conspiratorial is the wrong word, but like since 2001, the border has come to you more and more and more, right? And, and you don't have to go for the, to the border for the border to surveil you. And we can see this in, in hundreds of ways. Can we backtrack a little bit, just because our listeners will be familiar with some of the human stories that surrounded the end of Title 42? Some of those people, to my understanding, uh, entered the United States, I'm doing heavy air quotes, between ports of entry, uh, under Title 42, but then were detained. It is fairly obvious. They, they thought they were being detained. It looked very much like they were being detained. They weren't allowed to leave. CBP apparently would argue that they were not detained um, because the conditions were woefully inadequate by their own detention uh, policies, which, which don't exactly provide for luxurious conditions to begin with. And so... What would the situation be for those people? Because they haven't, they were trying, at least some people I spoke to, to make CBP one appointments from a place of detention, which I don't think one can do. Um, maybe one can if, if, if one's not on a list or something, but you still have to get there, right? And, and you can't leave south or north to, to, to access. You, you have to be in Mexico to schedule an appointment on CBP one. Okay, yeah. Uh, these guys were in between the as, border walls. As, so. as Jake knows better than I do, I mean, the issue with being along the border, and James, you know this because, yeah. I mean, you're there, uh, which cell tower you're on if you're close to the border mm -hmm. uh, oh, is yeah. a little tricky, isn't it? I got, um, I, so I use T-Mobile, but that's a free buzz marketing. Um, but they, I have free, ro free roaming on my phone, right? It's very useful in the work I do. But uh, I remember in 2018, uh, I was in Mexico a lot, and then I was obviously also just riding my bike a lot in places along the border. And they were like, you've been in Mexico every day this month. You don't live in America. We're going to cancel your phone contract. Uh, and I had been in Mexico like some days, but they had all this thing. Oh, you were pinging Mexican cell towers. Yeah, well, I was on a bike ride like in, in East County, San Diego. I wasn't in Mexico, but it my phone thought I was. And so, yeah, and it, it, the same thing can happen in reverse, right? Your, your phone can ping American cell towers when you're in Mexico. So those people might appear to be in the US when they're not. But in that situation, they couldn't make a CBP-1 appointment. So I guess they're assumed to have... It's the same as if they'd um, crossed the, the fence somewhere else and been detained 10 miles inside the United States, right? What would their process be? Yeah, so I think if we're talking about right now, this is mm -hmm. actually a really important, is that the yeah. new rule called Circumvention of Lawful Pathways that replaced yeah. Title 42... Supposed to happen like three years ago, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's it finally got passed. Um, yeah. Basically, there were a number of court challenges in mm -hmm. which red states tried to keep Title Forty Two in place. Um, yeah. The same states, mind you, who were uh, very critical of COVID protections, were mm -hmm. extremely worried about lifting yes. the ban on people on the southern border coming in because of COVID concerns. Um, 
part of what that rulemaking did was it worked a fundamental change in the way that asylum seeker seekers work. Um, and so like just context, asylum, claiming asylum is a human right. It is a right guaranteed by international law. It is a right guaranteed by U.S. law mm-hmm. that you can show up and say, hey, I am not safe in the country that I'm coming from and I need asylum in the States. And you have a right to do that. And for the U.S. or whatever country you arrive in to process your claim and decide if it's valid or not. Uh, so one of the changes in this rulemaking was that they are applying what is called the government is applying a presumption of ineligibility yes. to people seeking asylum, which means that if you did not show up in the proper manner, the United States, that means if you did not use the CBP one app to claim asylum before you got to the border, and if you did not apply for asylum in every country that you traveled through along the way. If you traveled from Guatemala and you did not pay for apply for asylum in Mexico before you got to the border, you are automatically deemed ineligible yeah. and your asylum claim will be denied with no hearing, with no opportunity to say, hi, I'm here because like my husband is a police officer somewhere in Guatemala and he's trying to kill me and I can't stay in the country. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that is a like fundamental change in the way the law works. And that's the starting point of someone who has crossed illegally, not used CBP one, um, and then is picked up. That's, and that's new in the law in 2023. Yeah. And so they will immediately be filing like a defensive asylum application, right. To prevent that removal. Yes. And basically at that point, you're trying to argue for one of a tiny subset of exemptions. Yes. Um, which there is, virtually no guidance on how to implement those exemptions right like one thing you can claim is that you crossed without a cbp1 appointment because you couldn't use the app um Mm -hmm. the idea of trying to prove to someone at the customs and border protection that you were technologically enabled to use an app seems basically impossible um given that the only proof that you have is that you didn't get the appointment right that you weren't able to submit it um that's not a strong record that a lawyer would like to argue on, I will tell you, as a lawyer. Um, and so the result is basically that people who have certainly legitimate asylum claims are likely to be turned away because they mm-hmm. didn't comply with the proper process. Yeah, even people we heard, um, what was it, Hidalgo? I can't remember where it was now, where uh, customs or officials in Mexico have been threatening to detain people for longer than it so they couldn't make it in time for their cbp1 appointment right that they had already made they'd, they'd gone through that arduous and, and biased process made the appointment and then people were being detained unless they paid a bribe and then, then if those people had crossed um like illegally in between ports of entry they would be very hard for them to prove that they could or that that had happened at all right like what it caused them to do that so it, those people are in an even more difficult scenario um if people then through any of these processes find themselves in a ATD alternative to detention. Um, there are numerous ways it could be surveilled. Austin mentioned that the, the phone app, which I think is, is the perhaps the like most recent and most common one. Um, another one is ankle monitors, right? You can get like a, a parole kind of style of ankle monitor. And I know that uh, Jake, you've written a little bit about some of the consequences of those. Do you want to talk about that? 
Yeah. So first of all, an overview of the ATP program mm -hmm. is that there are different levels of monitoring. Okay. And all of them are, I think, should functionally be viewed as e-carceration, which is to say that you are not, you've not been released from custody. Just the location of your custody has been moved from a prison to somewhere out in the world where you're being surveilled and your movements are potentially tracked, but you are still in many ways as vulnerable as you would be if you were actually in a jail or a prison. Um, and so ICE has the option to decide at their discretion which level of monitoring you get. The levels of monitoring, um, the highest level is an ankle bracelet or an ankle shackle. That is a GPS device that is battery powered, has potentially only a few hours of charge on it. You, you might get a day of charge off of it and is constantly monitoring your location and sending that location back to both ICE and to the contracting staff of BI Industries, this prison technology company who ICE has hired as case managers, basically people who are providing like support for ICE on keeping track of the usually eight to 10,000 people who are on the ankle monitor system. Um, if you don't get quite that high a level, or if you get de-escalated over time, you, you know, apply to ICE and you say, Hey, I've been on my ankle bracelet for like three months. I've not strayed outside the area I'm supposed to go. I've always responded to check-ins. Then they might bump you down to the SmartLink app, also provided by BI Industries on an extremely lucrative contract. Their last contract was like $2.2 billion. And that SmartLink app is either going to be loaded on your smartphone, if you have a smartphone mm -hmm. that can handle it, or you'll be given a smartphone yeah. by ICE and told to use that smartphone to check in. You will be required to check in on a sort of regular schedule. Um, I don't have a strong sense for how often that is. Um, could be daily, could be less. Uh, to check in, you're going to open the app up. It's going to ping your GPS location, send it to ICE. And then you're going to take a facial recognition photograph. That photograph will be compared to make sure that you're actually you. That photograph is also potentially capturing your surroundings, the people you live with, whoever's like in the frame. Um, and then you can communicate with your case manager on the app. Um, you can potentially find information on when your immigration court hearings are, that type of thing. Uh, it's the middle level of monitoring. The lowest level of monitoring is voice print based. So basically every once in a while, whatever your dedicated check-in time is, you're gonna call into ICE on your phone. You're going to say, hi, I'm Jake Wiener. I'm checking in. Um, and ICE will run a voice print analysis and make sure that you are the person you say you are um, and confirm your location. At any point, if that system screws up, you are potentially in you're then in violation of the terms of your release. And at any point, ICE, if you've there's been an error, an ICE officer can show up and take you right back to jail. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. 
It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wildcard on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk a little bit about the, you've mentioned BI, right? You've both mentioned BI. This is not a government agency. This is a contractor, but potentially they have access to your photograph, details of your asylum case. And we are we very clear on like, certainly with the ice issued phones, people seem to have concerns of like what is being monitored and what isn't being monitored on the phone, right? Like, is it only when they have the app open is everything on their phone now subject to like a review by ICE and, and potentially also by this third-party contractor, right? So how are those contractors vetting their personnel? How are they making sure that these this very sensitive information is secure and private like it should be? Yeah, I, I have no idea how they're vetting <laughs> their staff. They are um, not exactly forthcoming. Um, one aspect of the surveillance that I think is worth noting is that both ICE and BI don't just have your, whether you're on the smartphone or mm. if you're on the ankle monitor, they don't just have your last GPS ping. They have yes. your historical movements, which means if you're on an ankle monitor, they have a record of every single place you went for the entirety of the time since you've been on that ankle monitor. And they also know where you are right now. A um, little more limited on the smartphone, but that's information that's highly sensitive. Um, your location and especially your historical location information and tell you all kinds of things, like what church this person goes to. Have they been to Planned Parenthood recently? Who do they associate with? Like what houses have they visited? And for ICE, that information is very valuable because 
most migrants don't live alone. They live in community with other people. Some mm -hmm. of those people may be undocumented. And so as a migrant, you are now worrying every time you check in, am I exposing someone who's undocumented to ICE surveillance? Am I exposing myself, you know, to just like tagging somewhere that ICE doesn't want me to be? And maybe an officer is going to show up for a check because of that. It is created, creating a ton of insecurity in a system that is already very insecure. Yeah. Um, and the like psychological harms of that are manifest. You know, there's good studies like internationally um, that your risk of suicide and depression goes way up when you're on electronic monitoring, that your access to jobs goes way down. Um, you, you know, there's stigma with wearing an ankle brace. Also concerns that if you take a job, um, you won't be able to check in at your home at the appropriate time. It looks yeah. like you're absconding, right? So this level of monitoring is messing with people's lives in really fundamental and deeply cruel ways. Yeah, definitely. Um, and these, like, like you talked about, like, sort of how you, how your phone can make you a snitch. Uh, like mixed status families are very common, right? In, in especially in, in migrant diasporas. So, like, it could be someone in your family who has a different immigration status from you, and to do what you need to do, you might be putting that person at risk. So it's a very yeah, scary thing to have that that tag on you at all times. And like you said, like it, it's not just where you where you are, but where you've been. And I, if if I'm right, like they 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 keep that data, right? That that data isn't anonymized or sort of like destroyed. They they can keep that data forever if they want to. Yes, it's it's inputted into their systems, um, and that hangs around for I think the retention period is seventy five years. Okay, yeah, great. Depends a little bit. <laughs> yeah. This technology that goes into these, right? This facial recognition. I know they also have uh, number plate, license plate in America. Recognition. Um, they have. Uh, the, I'm trying to think uh, which other technologies they have. So cell phone site simulation. Uh, a lot of that can also be transferred to local police agencies, right? Through some of these, like they're not tech transfer programs. That's the wrong word. But some of these grants and, and programs that ICE and, and DHS more broadly has, does that mean that local police agencies could also have access to some of this data? Yeah. So I think there's two different types of programs and it's mm -hmm. worth breaking them apart. Yeah. Um, there are grant programs that are providing state and local police with the technology itself, right? That's like yeah. money to buy a license plate reader and yeah. pop it out in your community. Um, there are, is also the overlap between federal and specialty department of Homeland security, ICE's databases, the systems that they house all of this information in and state and local police, they have their own databases. Those databases are very often linked or are accessible, which means that monitoring, you know, your local police department has a log of everyone they arrest. Yeah. Very often that log is sent to ICE and vice versa, right? So it's uh, one of the main ways that this is done is through fusion centers, which yeah. is uh, basically a federally funded state-run technology center um, embedded in state or local police departments where you have Department of Homeland Security agents who have access to their set of databases and state and local police department officers who have access to their set of databases sitting right next to each other. And those people can then talk and be like, yo, I need you to run this search into your system. 
which is theoretically only for federal use, but suddenly is getting used for state law enforcement and vice versa. One of the biggest problems with this is that cities that want to be sanctuary cities that don't want their police departments reporting and handing people over to ICE when they arrest Mm -hmm. undocumented folks, city government is unable to control their local police departments and the information that is sent to ICE. So even ostensible sanctuary cities where the city says, we're not going to report this information, the way that these databases are tied together, especially license plate reader databases, um, as well, but as well as arrest databases, all sorts of stuff, means that the city government functionally cannot create a sanctuary city. Right. Uh, which is just in, if we talk about my situation, I'm in San Diego, uh, our mayor uh, is terrible and uh, wants to turn all our streetlights into spies, right? Like put, put little put little cameras on them so that they can uh, watch what we're doing. And like th- this information feeds into, we know exactly where the Fusion Center is actually. Like I wrote about this in 2020 when the cops took someone's phone and used gray key to crack it open. Um, so like the, yeah, the exposure for people who in the US who are not citizens of the US is, is very high with these things. Um, the last thing about these databases I wanted to talk about was those aren't the only databases that ICE has access to, right? Though, can you explain how they've, they've managed to acquire some data about other people and, and whether or not that is strictly speaking legal? Yeah, so we have a massive problem in America with data brokering, <laughs> which is yes. companies. Um, the biggest, the worst are LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters Westlaw, uh, but there are hundreds and hundreds of data brokers who vacuum up all of the information that they can off the internet, off of utility records, um, off of publicly available information, and basically make massive databases that are tracking to the best that they can every aspect of people's lives. Um, credit reporting agencies, the people who like give you your credit score are also data brokers. They're mm-hmm. pulling in all this information so that they can assign you your like credit, which is like where yeah. your credit cards are, how much money you have. All this information yeah. is super valuable, right? And it's valuable to advertisers. It's valuable for, yeah, like for marketing, but it's also really valuable for law enforcement. Um, because you have everything from like addresses where people are spending money. Um, often you can pull from advertise like phone advertising data, people's GPS location. And a number of these services have sold access to ICE. Um, both like Thompson Reuters Clear, Lexus Nexus has uh, several products that they sell to ICE, as well as LocateX, which is now Babel Street, um, which is specifically a GPS location company. Um, yeah. And ICE has basically managed to obtain through contracts information that they could not legally obtain through a warrant. Right. Which is yeah. to say that if you, a police officer, an ICE officer, want to get information on a single person, you know, you want their GPS location off their phone you need to go to a court and say, hey, I'm looking for James Stout and mm-hmm. I think that he committed a crime or an immigration, or he yeah. broke immigration law. Here's my evidence. I need a warrant. You cannot get a warrant for mass monitoring. That's like a yeah. fundamental part of how the Fourth Amendment in the U.S. Constitution yeah. works is that it has to be individualized or very close to individualized. But there is currently no law that says that ICE 
can't just go buy the information on an open market and completely evade the warrant requirement. Um, so that's what's going on with LexisNexis, with LocateX, um, as well as some like social media surveillance companies. Right. Yeah. They're the same databases that I, as a journalist, use when I'm, uh, in, you know, wondering if this Nazi is still living in this place or, or you know, finding the sons of Confederate veterans to uh, check if they still work at the Citadel University. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I think a good way to finish this up would be to talk about once you're in, you've gone through this process, right? You've CVP one, you've ATD'd, uh, and you enter into sort of the asylum hearing, or you have your your, your various different asylum processes. Can Austin, can you give us a very broad overview of like the likelihood of success, and, and maybe a couple of? I know you're very good at monitoring the factors that determine. Uh, the likelihood of success of an asylum application through track. And, and this is a great place to plug track if you want to. Um, uh, can you talk about like how likely folks are to uh, to be successful in that asylum application process? Yeah, so we monitor um, this uh, federal data related to immigration and other areas through track, uh, transactional records access clearinghouse at Syracuse University. 
where I'm at. Um, I'm also a research fellow at American University, so we have a kind of a fun partnership right now, looking at different angles of connecting, you know, data to um, to research on Latin American Latino migrants. Um, and so we keep really close track of what's happening with the immigration courts. We don't get data. If you remember earlier, I described those two tracks of seeking asylum. Yeah. We don't currently get data on that first track where people go through asylum officers at USCIS. Mm-hmm. Um, we're interested in it, um, but they actually publish not comprehensive, but they publish a decent amount of data. Um, we would certainly like to get more. Yeah. But it's the immigration courts that we have focused very heavily on for the last decade, I would say. And so we get very detailed granular data from the immigration courts on a monthly basis that allows us to see exactly what's happening. I would say currently, um, the success rate, denial rate, however you want to put it, in immigration court for asylum seekers is about 52 or 53% get denied, about 47 to 48% um, are granted asylum. Um, but that varies widely by immigration court and by nationality. So um, migrants from Central America, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala tend to have much higher denial rates, 70, 80%, 90%. Um, whereas um, nationals from, let's say, uh, Ukraine, uh, uh, China, um, some other countries, uh, Cuba, have very high success rates. Haiti, actually, is a good example of a country that has very low grant rates, very high denial rates, Um, even though, uh, much like northern Mexico, uh, where we actually send people that we deport very often, there are all kinds of travel warnings. You know, the United States government does not want people going to Haiti because it's too dangerous, but we don't seem to have a problem deporting people back there who are seeking asylum, right? Um, and so that's what that's what we've seen in recent years. The denial rate was as high as 70% during the Trump administration. Um, and so it's certainly much better under the Biden administration. I do want to say, though, that in addition to sort of uh, uh, policy-related um, issues that may drive this factor, geographic concerns. Uh, People are much more successful in New York City than, say, Houston or Atlanta, Georgia. Um, But uh, one of the really important factors here is, in addition to all of that, um, there's a threshold question, which is a lot of people, including a lot of people who are recently arriving to the United States, um, if they can't get an attorney, it's very unlikely that they will even be able to file an asylum application in the first place. So that 50, you know, that, that 48% yes. grant rate is for people who file an asylum application. We're, we're not seeing, you know, the people who don't even, who aren't even able to file an asylum application in the first place. And one of the most concerning things, uh, recent developments is that the Biden administration, I think, not for no reason at all. I mean, there's 2.2 million pending cases in the immigration courts right now. The Biden administration is trying to push cases through faster. This is something the Obama administration tried, Trump administration tried it, Biden administration tried it. And every single time the cases get accelerated, um, including a large number of family cases, unfortunately, they simply don't have time to get an attorney and file a good asylum application. So what we're seeing is in addition to like geography, nationality, does someone get an attorney? Mm-hmm. It's also speed, just how mm-hmm. fast the cases go through. And the reality is um, if, if you try to force an asylum case through the immigration courts, or frankly, even through USAIS in a matter of weeks, um, 
people are just not going to win. You, you can't, you can't speed things up and maintain a fair system. You just can't. It's also not great for people to wait, you know, five, six, seven, eight years for a hearing or for a conclusion. So that's not ideal either, but, you know, trying to force cases through and, you know, two or three months is just doesn't work. Yeah. I've spoken to people. I spoke to a friend a couple of weeks ago who was saying that now he's seeing people newly arrived. He's, he's been in the United States for a few years, gone through the process, but he's seeing people come in and the, the amount to pay for a lawyer, if they want to get a private lawyer, is going up. And like if people only have a few months or don't have the right to work, there's just no way for them to obtain that much money. And and then the people who are doing it sort of, uh, I guess, sort of in, for nonprofits uh, are just overwhelmed by, by the amount of demand. So... Yeah, those those people are in a really tough situation. Yeah, I think we should talk a little bit about the <laughs> fundamental unfairness of this system. Yep. Um, so, like, immigration judges are administrative law judges. They are not, like, real judges um, approved by Congress. They are hired by an administrative agency, which effectively means that there are much lower bars to who can be an administrative law judge. <laughs> um you also, as a, as an immigrant, do not have a right to an attorney sitting in front of an administrative law judge. And one of the things that the data throws out is that in every aspect of the system, having an attorney is the strongest indicator of a good result. So that's like how likely people are to know about their appointments. It's actually extremely hard if you are someone who does not speak English and yeah. has you know limited money and limited access to the system and frankly uh, does not understand how the american immigration law system works which is reasonable because virtually no one understands how it works yeah. <laughs> um, it's really difficult to know like when you have a court date much less to show up and to understand what kind of information that you need to collect and present to a judge that will be convincing to this person who, again, is not an Article Three judge that's been appointed by Congress, not the type of judges that you or I would have our cases heard by if we were arrested um, or if we just like filed a lawsuit. Um, and so access to a judge is like the n number one best indicator for whether your asylum claim is going to be successful or not, mm -hmm. or any kind of claim in the immigration system, frankly. Um, and we do not provide that to people who don't have yeah. the money to hire a lawyer. Yeah which is fundamentally unjust, right? We also, there's like not a guarantee that you'll have a quality translator. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you'll be able to show up to court and at all understand what is happening in your legal case, um, which is a huge barrier to be able to get a good result, to be able to communicate who you are and why you are, will not be safe if you are deported from the country. Right. Yeah, we heard that in, in May where there were like, they were basically asking if anyone could come and help trans like uh, migrant advocacy groups you know uh, does someone speak Comanche? does someone speak turkish uh does you know does, does someone speak vietnamese could they come down and help this person with their initial interview which it's, it's just not a uh not a just or even reasonable way to do these things but yeah that, that's where it's at right now i guess i think most people probably aren't aware of of much of that so it's good to explain how fundamentally unjust it is so where, if people want to learn more about this, if people want to follow along, I know you both do some writing online. Uh, where can they find you and where can they find more of your writing about this? 
Yeah, so um, you can find my writing on the Electronic Privacy Information Center or EPIC's website, that is epic.org. Um, you can find me and my 150 followers on Twitter <laughs> at, uh, at RealJakeWiener, that's W-I-E-N-E-R. Um, and hopefully in the near future, you'll be able to find some scholarship for me as well. Oh, cool, yeah, using the Donald Trump Twitter format. Great. <laughs> Uh, how about you, Austin? Where can people find you? You have many more followers on Twitter.com. Yeah, uh, so uh, it's Austin Coker. Last name is K-O-C-H-E-R. Uh, the peculiarity of that name is in my favor because you know pretty easy to search. But um, actually, this is great timing. I just had an article published this week, detailed one on CBP1. It's called Glitches and the Digitization of Asylum. Um, it's an academic article, but uh, it is open access, so there's no paywall there. Glitches in the Digitization of Asylum. It's also up on my Twitter page. I'm on Twitter at AC Coker, so A-C-K-O-C-H-E-R. And I also write pretty regularly on Substack. Um, and I, that's like a weird thing to say. I'm slightly embarrassed to mention it, <laughs> except that I'm not because uh, this <laughs> academic article emerged actually out of stuff that I was initially exploring on Substack. So I really I loved that. Uh, format for writing because it's given me a chance to work out concepts and ideas before they even yeah. go into like peer review print. So if some if people want to get ahead of the curve on what I'm thinking, um, go check that out too. Nice. And Very don't forget to visit track t r a c dot s y r dot edu to get mm -hmm. all kinds of data on immigration courts, alternatives to detention, detention statistics, and so forth. Yeah, I like track. There's a Telegram channel as well, right? It's like the only time I can go on Telegram and not see dead people. So I appreciate it for that. That's right. We, we put stuff out on Telegram and WhatsApp too. Uh, so if you don't want to have to be on Twitter, if you don't want to have to get an email on something like that, you just want to get a little, if you like some of those other messaging platforms, we have announcement threads on there. You can't interact. Uh, you just, you just get the little notification, but uh, we try to, we try to diversify as much as possible especially with the uh, muscification of Twitter. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably a good move. Thank you very much for your time, both of you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. That was very insightful. Thank you, James. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then, fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.